From the pages of his award-winning short stories, host Troy Smith will take you on a journey across the plains of the Wild West or maybe a thousand light years away on a planet in a far-off solar system. So kick back and let your imagination run wild on this journey. The Tennessee Wordsmith starts now. Hello, I'm Troy Smith, and this is Tennessee Wordsmith where I share with you some of my uh, usually previously published, actually sometimes not, some of my short fiction. I am uh, a native of the Upper Cumberland region. I'm also a uh, history professor at Tennessee Tech. But even before I was a history professor, my, my night job for many years has been writing fiction. Uh, a lot of that fiction has been of the historical variety. I've written a lot of Westerns, but I've also written um, in a lot of different genres. And the story I'm going to share with you now, on the one hand, could be viewed as a Western of sorts or perhaps a Northern. It takes place during the uh, Klondike Gold Rush in Alaska in the 1890s, but... Uh, Western is not the main genre that it would fall under. Uh, it's more really of a horror story. So with that being said, uh, let's begin. The name of the story is The Wendigo. Where do you reckon them boys is at? Joe Petrie asked Billy. They've been gone off a long time. You reckon they got lost? Billy Blackwell grunted, not taking his eyes off their pitiful little fire. Frank giggled at Joe's words. It echoed in the dark woods, a hollow sound. Lost from where, Frank said. We're lost. If and they're lost from us, it stands to reason they must be found. So I wished I'd have went with them. That don't make no sense, Joe said. But his face betrayed the confused fear that perhaps it made perfect sense to everyone but him. I'll tell you what makes sense, MacDonald mumbled. Rob and Crane found him some game and shot it. Then they built a little fire and ate all that food theirself, instead of bringing it back here and sharing it with us like they're supposed to do. Frank snorted. There ain't no food in these blasted woods. Everything's froze but the trees. There's got to be something somewhere, Joe said in a lost voice. There's got to be. Lousy wolves must not even come up this way, Grayson said. I ain't seen nary a one anyways. The hunger was harder on Grayson than on the other seven men. Grayson was on the stout side, and throughout his life he had loved his beans. No venture could be considered a failure, in his opinion, if it at least provided a man with beans and a little meat of some kind to chew on. If someone had asked him in advance, Grayson doubted he would have come on what turned out to be such a grubless trip, not for the chance to pan any amount of gold. Billy remained silent. He saw no point in wasting precious breath and energy on unnecessary words. He stretched his hands yet again before the smoldering fire. There must be bigger blazes burning somewhere, Billy knew. The saloons in Dawson City were lit by them, and the girls danced in their flickering shadows. They should have been in Dawson by now, standing within sight of both the Yukon and the Klondike Rivers. It felt so close Billy imagined he could smell it. The fact remained, though, that the hopeful miners were lost. None of them had any idea where they were or how to escape the frozen woods that had swallowed them up. 
McDonald's skinny face twisted into a sneer, an expression that was becoming all too familiar in Billy's opinion. Looks like we wasted our time bringing this Indian along, McDonald said. This here's his country. Looks like he could have done a better job of guiding us. Lesson, of course, he wants us all to freeze or starve. Charlie Pahi, the Indian in question, had been about as quiet on this trip as Billy Blackwell. Now he merely shook his head. Whether in frustration or amusement, no one could tell. Everyone knew that Charlie had suffered as much on this expedition as anyone. Maybe more. He was the only man who had shown a willingness to share his meager rations. And he had suffered quietly. I done told you, Charlie Pahi said. His deep voice was such a surprising sound that some of the other men jumped at it. I done told you more times than one. I'm Cree. This ain't my territory, and I ain't no guide. MacDonald sneered again and grunted. Billy closed his eyes, but he could still see the skinny man's oily expression. He imagined his own booted foot smashing the sneer into the frozen ground, then shook his head to clear away the image. Such fantasies required too much energy to sustain. Indians is Indians, if you ask me, MacDonald muttered. Forget about that, Frank said. He tried to inject some authority into his voice, but the words still came out sounding hollow, like echoes from a dead tree. It's them two boys we need to be worried about. Something might have happened to them. MacDonald snorted. It was hard to just forget about Charlie Pahi being an Indian, despite the fact that his hair was chopped short and he dressed like the other miners. MacDonald's Aunt Molly had been ravished by Sioux Indians and then pinned to the ground with arrows, and his cousin Matthew had been scalped alive by Comanches. Matthew had always worn a hat after that, and it would never fit right. MacDonald never liked Matthew much, but it was the principle of the thing. Indians were Indians, Canadian or not. Maybe the Wendigo got them, Charlie Pahi said. A couple of the men nodded. Charlie's words were spoken with such authority. Then they realized they had no idea what the Cree was talking about. Maybe the what got them? Joe Petrie said. The Wendigo, Charlie Pahi answered. There's Wendigos in the woods back home. I see no reason why they shouldn't be stalking in these woods here. Is that some kind of bear? Grayson asked in an uncertain tone. On the one hand, a bear might be good, for bears are fine eating. On the other hand, a bear might be just as hungry as the miners were. If that were the case, the bear might well decide that Grayson himself would make a tasty first course. It's not a bear, Charlie said, and Grayson heaved a little sigh of relief. No, a wendigo is a whole lot worse than any bear. Oh, Grayson said. The wendigo is a magical creature of the forest, Charlie explained. It has haunted my people for as long as anybody remembers. They say it is a great big beast all covered with white fur, built like a man, with arms and hands and clawed fingers and toes, and a mouth filled with dozens of razor-sharp teeth. They prowl through the trees looking for human people to eat. And all the time they moan and howl, echoing all mournful and sad through the trees. What does a big old son of a gun like that have to be mournful about? Frank asked. That's what makes it magical, the Cree answered. Every Wendigo used to be a man. Whenever a man in these north woods gives in to hunger and eats another man, he falls under the curse of the Wendigo. 
He gets turned into a demon beast until the end of time. MacDonald shook his head and muttered something about stupid pagan Indians. <clears throat> I take it you've never actually seen one of these Wendigos, Billy said. No, I ain't, Charlie said, but I've heard them wail. Raised in the woods, MacDonald said, and you don't even recognize the sound of the wind blowing through the trees. A Wendigo's howl ain't like no wind you've ever heard, said Charlie. Whenever a Cree hears that howl, he lays low. Folks tend to disappear and never show up again. Not in one piece. Billy thought the whole thing was silly, but he said nothing. A little harmless fear would help them all keep warm. My grandfather was eaten by a Wendigo, Charlie added. So I guess I know what I'm talking about. We never found nothing but just one of his shank bones. Just, just a shank bone? Joe Petrie repeated, shivering a little. Well, maybe there is such a thing and maybe there's not, Frank said. But it wouldn't be in these woods. There's no game for it. Nor is there enough for bears or wolves or much of anything else. They're probably just lost. Best thing we can do is roll over and get some shut-eye. Rob and Crane will come uh, stumbling by in the morning, most likely. Frank emphasized his point by curling up into his own blanket. The other prospectors followed his example. Joe Petrie with great reluctance. Billy Blackwell stole a glance at the fire from under his blanket. Charlie Pahi still sat there, motionless except for his thin lips. They trembled a bit. From the cold, perhaps, Billy thought. Maybe even from fear, although that seemed out of character. Billy watched a while and finally began to think the Indian was praying. Then the miner realized what it really was. Charlie Pahi was chanting something under his breath. They were awakened by the howling. A loud, tortured sound. It hurtled through the trees and washed over the startled prospectors like a tornado. Everyone bolted upright except Charlie Pahi, who had not settled into his blanket to begin with. He still sat before the fire, unmoving, his position apparently unchanged since the last time Billy saw him. The silent Cree betrayed no surprise at the mysterious sound and no fear, only what seemed to be a profound sadness. The wailing continued for several minutes, which felt like hours. It rose and fell, undulating, sounding almost human one second and unearthly the next. The white man stared into the darkness. Do you know the difference, MacDonald? Charlie Pahi asked softly. Huh? Do you know the difference between the wind and the windigo? MacDonald didn't reply. He licked his lips and stared at the tiny flames of the fire that Charlie had somehow kept alive without moving. MacDonald's sneer was gone, for which Billy owed a debt of gratitude to the theoretical Wendigo. I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat that sentence. Hold on a second. MacDonald's sneer was gone, for which Billy owed a debt of gratitude to the theoretical Wendigo. It's just a trick of the wind, Frank asserted, or else some critter. It ain't no boogeyman. There's no sense getting all stirred up. Frank stared hard at Charlie Pahi silently reproving the Indian for introducing his wild ideas, perhaps even 
blaming him for the eerie noise. Charlie stared back with no expression on his face at all. Frank's glare softened, but continued. It became a sort of desperate stare, searching the Indian's eyes for some sign that the entire thing was only a joke. Charlie's eyes did not waver. Come daylight, Billy said. We'll need to go out and look for Rob and Crane and bring them back in. We'll never see them again, said Charlie Pahi. No one will. The howling stopped. It ended abruptly on a high note, like a whining dog that had been kicked. The prospectors could each feel eyes upon them, and they sensed a hunger in the woods much stronger than their own. The silence became more oppressive than the keening had been. No one slept for the rest of the night. All six of the lost men left their camp together just after dawn. They stuck much closer together than they normally would have, for no one wanted to be separated from the group. It's easier to get an early start when you don't have to waste time with breakfast, Frank said. No one laughed at his joke. They found it about a mile from their camp. It was in a wide clearing. The snow was soaked with blood, and a few bones were strewn about. Good Lord, Joe Petrie said. It looks like somebody slaughtered a hog. I told you, MacDonald said triumphantly. Rob and Crane caught something to eat. Of course, they didn't share none with us, but at least that proves there's food to be found in these woods. The boys must have got lost after they made their kill, Frank said, or else we would have met up with them. We have met up with them, said Charlie. The Indian knelt in the bloody snow. He held up a little bone. This here is a human finger bone, Charlie said, and it's been sucked clean. Same with all these other bones, all human, all picked clean. No, MacDonald said. No, that ain't right. That can't be. I always heard grizzly bears had, had bones that looked like humans. No, they don't, Petrie said. Well, that's always what I heard. Don't matter none, said Charlie Pahi. He retrieved another item from the snow and held it up to the light. Grizzly bears don't wear wedding rings. Rob had one, though. And here it is. A closer examination of the bloody scene revealed two more surprises for the prospectors. The first was the find, in a nearby clump of brush, of both the missing men's rifles. The second was the footprints. There's no sign. Billy said. He was both confused and frustrated and beginning to feel the gnawing pains of fear. There's no sign that anyone was here other than Rob and Crane. No tracks, no nothing. It don't make sense. Look here, Charlie said, pointing to the snow a few yards away. Drag marks. Something heavy was dug deeper into the woods. The drag marks hide the footprints of the dragger, if there was any prints. The six nervous men followed the trail. Each had drawn his own weapon, and the hackles rose on their necks when they saw the bloody smears inside the shallow trench they were scouting. Sweet God, Frank mumbled when they found the body. Joe Petrie doubled over at once, seized by the dry heaves. The drag marks ended abruptly, with no other tracks to be seen. 
The corpse was hanging upside down from a high tree limb. They were unable to identify it. It's dressed out like a deer, Billy muttered. The cadaver was skinned and most of the flesh was stripped from it. Charlie Pahi chuckled once, a laugh without humor, but still ghostly out of place for the scene they were witnessing. MacDonald whirled on him. What's so blame funny? MacDonald demanded. Charlie pointed at the body. Huh. Do you reckon the wind did that? No one spoke, so Charlie answered his own question. No, I reckon it didn't. Charlie ranged out a little ways while the others stood transfixed by the gently swaying remains. Don't you reckon we ought to bury it, or him, Grayson said, or something? We should, Billy said. But I don't care to. Not with some man-eating varmint around. He nodded at the tree limb. I reckon he'll keep. Unless you want to climb up there and get him, Grayson, and stay here to bury him while we hunt for his killer. Grayson seemed uncertain. Rob was my friend. We don't even know if that's him. I didn't ever really care much for Crane, though, said Grayson thoughtfully. Found something, Charlie called out. What is it, Frank said. Everyone walked over to him except for Grayson, who still stood looking up into the tree. Drops of blood in the snow over here, Charlie told them, but no tracks. He jerked his head upward at the trees above them. It butchered the first man, then carried the other with it into the trees. At least we know which way it went, Billy said. That means we know which way not to go, said Joe Petrie. You know better than that, Billy told him. It killed once, and it'll kill again. Better to track the thing now than to sit around and wait for it to get hungry again. Let's move then, Charlie said. I suppose I'll wait, Grayson said. I suppose I'll stay here and bury poor old Rob, or, or whoever it is, he shivered. I wouldn't want nobody to go off and leave my bones swinging in the wind. If you feel that strong about it, Billy said. Grayson scratched his head. Only thing is, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get it down. I could shimmy up there, Joe Petrie offered. Billy glanced over at Charlie Pahi. The Indian nodded ever so slightly. They were both thinking along the same lines then. They could travel faster and accomplish more without the most fragile members of their party. One of us needs to stay with him then, Billy told Frank. His unspoken message was, someone should stay who can protect them. We ought to all go after this critter, Frank argued. You can catch up, Billy said. It ain't smart to divide ourselves like this, said Frank, but Billy shook his head. Three men on the lookout are a different story from Rob and Crane. They had no idea they needed to be watchful in these woods. No point discussing it any more. We have to go. Charlie Pahi had already started off, his rifle balanced easily in his hands. He paused and waited for Billy and MacDonald to catch up. The three men traveled without a word. Their every sense was strained. Each man tried to absorb every detail from the forest around him in an effort to pick up their enemy's trail. When the sun set upon them, they still had found nothing. Charlie Pahi made another weak fire. It gave the men little more than a pale glow to see by, and that only if they hunched around it. There was no moon. MacDonald was apprehensive. He tapped his fingers on his knee, slowly at first, but then more and more rapidly. "'What's wrong, MacDonald?' Billy said. 
The other man sighed deeply. Then he stood up and drew out his revolver. I'm going behind that tree right there, he announced, to uh, relieve myself. Could you, uh, could you? We'll listen for you, Charlie told him. MacDonald paused, then nodded sharply and stepped out of sight. He fumbled with the buttons on his trousers, still holding the pistol, and squatted down. He never dreamed he would ever relieve himself with a gun in his hand. Despite the weapon, he felt terribly vulnerable. He could make no movement. His guts were churned up by fear, not the need to produce waste. He had not digested anything in days anyhow. Recent events had made him forget his hunger. You all right back there? Billy called out. Yeah, MacDonald answered, grateful for the sound of a human voice. He stood and hitched up his pants. About to buckle his belt, he sensed a presence behind him. He turned slowly, peering into the darkness. There was no physical evidence, just a sudden panicky feeling which seized MacDonald's chest. Then he felt something ripping into his belly, and he squealed. Billy and Charlie ran toward the sound. Billy fired his Winchester into the air. He was afraid to shoot toward the struggle for fear of hitting MacDonald. MacDonald! Billy cried out. Where are you? There was a whimper a few yards away, followed by a terrible, ripping sound. MacDonald had not wandered out that far, Billy knew. He was being dragged away. Billy ran full speed in the darkness and heard Charlie's heavy footsteps right behind him. There was a fierce growl at his elbow. The attacking creature was running away. Billy fired at the sound of its passing, but doubted he hit it. Help me! Billy groped in the darkness until he found MacDonald. He and Charlie carried the wounded man back to the fire. Dear God, Billy muttered when they could see the man's injuries. It seemed that all of MacDonald's insides were now on the outside. Don't leave me. Please don't leave. MacDonald's hand feebly grasped at Billy's arm. It gripped with a ferocity he would not have expected from such a horribly mutilated man. Billy glanced at Charlie. The Indian shook his head. No place we can go anyways. Too dark to track or do anything else either. We'll follow it in the morning. Billy didn't know when MacDonald died. As the new day spread over them, he noticed for the first time the emptiness in MacDonald's eyes. Charlie Pahi probed roughly with his fingers at the dead man's shredded torso. What did it? Billy asked. Charlie grunted. <clears throat> Could have been claws. Could have been a dull knife. Could have been about anything, really. Well, that sure helps a lot. Charlie shook his head. He's ripped up too much to tell. All I know for sure is that it was real strong and real fast, and it doubled back on us. The tracks told them nothing. The killer had dropped, nimbly and quietly, out of a tree not far from MacDonald. The fury of the attack, as well as the fact that it dragged its victim behind it for a ways, obliterated the footprints. Charlie could only find a partial print near the site where it returned to the trees. It's the front end of a snowshoe, the Cree informed his partner, and then he shrugged. Or maybe it's some kind of big hoof. I don't know. I thought she was some kind of expert tracker. Never tracked a windigo. They kept traveling eastward on the same course as before. The north woods felt different to Billy Blackwell now than they had a few days earlier. Before, 
when the men were threatened only by hunger, the forest had seemed empty as a desert. Now it took on a life of its own, with eyes which stared at their back, and a hunger that sucked the energy out of their vitals as they walked. It was late afternoon when they found the monster's lair. A small cave the wind had carved out of a hillside, barely large enough for a man to crawl into and lie down. Red bones littered the snow in front of the entrance. A pair of snowshoes had been set nearby. Billy knelt and touched them, then recoiled when he realized they were human sinews stretched across rib bones. The bodies hung from the branches, just like the first one they had found. Frank had told his last joke, and Grayson had savored his last meal. Only Joe Petrie's body had been violated. Half the flesh had been ripped from it. The howling began almost immediately. It came from the woods all around them, bouncing off a thousand trees. The two men tensed and shuffled almost unconsciously until they were back to back, their eyes widening as they tried to see every inch of their surroundings. The Wendigo dropped to the ground in front of Charlie Pahi. It swiped his weapon away with one hand while the other ripped upward into the Indian's belly. It took the time to twist its blade higher until it heard Charlie's death grunt Then it tossed him aside like a wet rag. In that one brief moment before he took action, Billy got a clear look at his enemy for the first time. It moved and behaved like the supernatural beast of Charlie Pahi's legends. It was difficult to recognize that the killer was human, or ever had been. But it was human. It was Crane. The lost prospector crouched before Billy like a panther, his right hand grasped so tightly around the bowie knife that it looked like a natural extension of his body. His eyes were animal eyes, and his limbs were filled with a power no sane man could possess. Crane truly had fallen victim to the curse of the Wendigo then. The loneliness of the woods had cast a spell upon his soul, feeding on his hunger until reason and morals had been gnawed away. He must have snapped when he was scouting with Rob. He must have seen the opportunity to feed his hunger and seized it, unable to look back afterwards on what he had done. Crane crouched for only an instant after he threw Charlie's body to the ground. Such an instant must have been enough before to freeze his victims with recognition and with fear until it was too late for them. It was not enough for Billy Blackwell. He had a hunger, too. A hunger to stay alive. It was stronger even than the will of any Wendigo. Billy was firing the Winchester into Crane's chest even as the madman began his fatal leap. He stepped aside and shot Crane again as he hit the ground. Then Billy stood over the man-beast and emptied the rifle into it with deliberate calm. He would take no chances. He tossed the empty weapon away and picked up Charlie's as a replacement. He turned Crane over. The lunatic was as dead as a body gets, lunatic or not. Billy heaved a deep sigh. He looked at the carnage around him. The lifeless forest had fed upon them. And still its hunger was not satisfied. Billy could still feel it. He could still feel the eyes of the forest upon him. His own hunger returned now that the danger was past, 
and it occurred to him. He didn't know where the thought came from, that there was more than enough meat in front of him to last until he reached civilization. The urge to draw his own knife and feed was almost overpowering. Billy shook his head. He would live on tree bark until he reached the settlements if he had to. He might have succumbed to the unnatural temptation a few days before, but not after he had seen what happened to Crane. Billy started walking. He didn't even check to see what direction he was taking. He knew it led to sanity. He thought he heard the howl of the windigo wailing through the trees, calling to him like a siren, inviting him to join with it. Or perhaps it was just the wind. It was hard to tell. Strange things happen in the North Woods. The end. You've been listening to the Tennessee Wordsmith. Download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Hints and Oakley Podcast Center. 